Political columnist Moshe Hill joins the VIN News podcast. And Moshe is here today to discuss whether Biden is only really awful or if he is super-duper unspeakably, like worse than monkeypox, awful. Moshe is a senior fellow at Amaria, has a weekly column in the Queen's Jewish Link. His blog is ahillwithaview.com. Twitter account, uh, the one that has not been suspended or banned, is at hillwithview. So, Moshe, welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. And what they need to redefine, they're redefining the word recession. They need to redefine the word Biden to, like, mean anything other than what it means right now. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. I love that it not only did they redefine the word recession two days before the uh, GDP report came out, (laughs) but everybody bought into it. So the second the GDP report came out, uh, all the headlines from New York Times, AP News, all that stuff were – uh, GDP shows second quarter of uh, negative growth, which some refer to as a recession or may show signs of a recession. Like they all just towed the company line right away. It may, it was, yeah, it may, may signal a recession. Two days before, what an incredible coincidence. And the, the part that really makes you crazy is how stupid do they think everybody is? Nobody cares. You put lipstick on a recession, it's still a recession. People still can't afford gas. They still can't afford groceries. They have to wait six months to buy a new car. They don't care what you call it. The, the speed at which words are redefined is actually so um, scary in a way. Like I remember a couple years back um, with, uh, when Amy Coney Barrett was getting – uh, during a confirmation hearing, and Maisie Hirono, she said like a word about like preference or something like that, and and Maisie Hirono said like, well, that's not actually accurate, whatever. And like within minutes, the dictionary changed it to <laughs> fix to to show what Maisie Hirono said, and like wow. the speed at which we redefine language and we throw it around so often, Orwellian. It is scary how 1984 has become prophecy. At this point, like it is things are getting changed. You have words coming in, words going down the memory hole, new speak. It is crazy. If you haven't read that book, you have to read it because you're going to your mind is going to get blown. Yeah, you're you're reading it. You're like, this is happening. You're actually right. I mean, it reminds me of the Ministry of Truth. I mean, Biden appointed a disinformation czar who she literally was in charge of his disinformation uh, against Trump during the campaign. And that's what qualified her until she was exposed, you know, for being, you know, all of her baggage. Absolutely, yeah. And then they brought it back, like, quietly under a different uh, name, and it's it's yeah. kind of happening, but it's kind of not happening, and, like, it's ridiculous. Insane. I know. So I really want to ask you – we'll get back into the Biden stuff. I want to ask you about local politics, about New York politics. You recently wrote a column about Lee Zeldin, and you almost gave me, like, some hope and optimism, which I'm really terrified to have. You really think Lee Zeldin has a chance in New York? So under normal circumstances with a half-normal president, even a Democratic one, um, and, and a half-decent economy, even like, you know, what we had under Obama, which was um, not negative growth, but like very, very slow growth. Like it should have been like 3% growth. And it was really like a little above one. Like under those circumstances, I would give any Republican a 5% chance of winning in New York. But with this president, with this governor from New York after the scandal with, um, with Cuomo, with the lieutenant governor that she originally picked who was set to prison, um, with the recession going on, with high gas prices, with the crime that's been happening where we have one-party rule, I'm not saying that he it's a 50-50 shot. I am not saying that he has, uh, he's going to win this, but he has 
six to eight times more chance. So I would say like a 30 to 40% chance of winning, which is far and beyond what a normal Republican would have on an, in a, any other year. So if it's going to happen, it's going to happen this year. And we have to, in New York, we have to flood the, the voting booths. We really do. Any Democrat who is sick of this one-party rule, any independent who didn't show up during uh, the last couple of elections because they're like, what's the difference? It's Democrat, it's blue, who cares? And especially any Republican who is in New York has to show up in November because it's the only chance we have. Yeah. And I think that the um, Democratic Party is not motivated to come out to vote. People are looking at the primary numbers and finding, um, oh, well, there's so much primary numbers came out for Kathy Hochul. But if you compare those primary numbers with the primary numbers that were for Cuomo in the previous cycles, it's not that much. It really isn't. Like It's like half of what it was. So there is some hope. I wouldn't get your hopes up. This is New York, after all. The Manhattan, uh, New York City has 8 million people in it. Um, so it is very, it's a, a very, very tough climb. But if anyone could do it, I think Lee Zelda could do it. Yeah, look, and I tend to agree with you. Again, I, I hate the fact that you're getting my hopes up here because I get optimistic and then I'm setting myself up for a letdown, kind of like I'm still waiting for like John Durham to like indict James Comey type of thing, you know? And, uh, and, and the Mets, I mean, I have people convincing me that the Mets are going to win it all. I've been through this rodeo way too many times. I get optimistic and then I get crushed. So I'm like waiting for the shoe to drop. But I tend to agree with you. Look, it, it, it's going to be a very low turnout in New York State, I have no doubt, because it's not a presidential year, and people, Hochul, she was never elected even the first time. She has very low popularity rating. Like you said, the crime rates, Democrats are not going to show up. If every Republican theoretically showed up, I agree with you. Like, there's way, way, way better shot, way much more of the perfect storm than we have seen in many, many years. I want to dive into some of the actual issues from the from Jewish perspective here for a moment. As a from Jew, I, I cannot fathom why anybody you know, would endorse or support Governor Hochul versus Zeld. And let's look at some of these issues where Hochul's on the wrong side. Substantial equivalency standards where they want to impose these secular uh, restrictions on yeshivas, where Hochul technically has not taken a stand, but we all know what that means. Zeldin is very supportive of yeshivas. The surge in anti-Semitic hate crimes, which is a direct result of Hochul's policies. The abortion issue is in play now. All the gender insanity, which maybe technically doesn't impact private schools and yeshivas, but it, there's a culture that is brewing, and that's thanks to Democrats like Hochul. And now, by the way, I'm sure you're aware, this Governor Hochul, she banned concealed, following the Supreme Court ruling about concealed uh, carry permits, Hochul actually banned concealed carry in houses of worship in addition to businesses, so that prevents shuls from arming congregants. So it's like on every issue, Hochul's on the wrong side when it comes to what the Orthodox Jewish community cares about. Zeldin's on the right side. Yeah, and um, as you can tell by my T-shirt, my kippah surah, I am a I'm more modern Orthodox uh, on these on uh, yes. religiously, um, but the <laughs> but <laughs> the um, notion that that any of these policies are quote unquote pro-Jewish. Now the issue is that we have um, three kinds of Jews, I guess you would say in in New York. You have the uh, yeshivish Hasidic Jews, which uh, are would look at any of these policies and immediately balk. Yeah, let's you have the the, community, yeah. Exactly. You have the non-religious Jews who are very pro all this stuff, um, who are who are reform, conservative, like they're very pro a lot of these issues, 
they're the ones who are writing columns saying, oh, uh, abortion is a Jewish value and uh, guns. Yeah. And then you have the modern Orthodox community, which is probably split, I would say, 65-35 towards the um, uh, more religious view where these things are ridiculous. These things are crazy. But um, a lot of people, a lot of people in the Jewish community, let's look at the school issue for a second. A lot of people in the Jewish community are like, well, you know, it's really terrible what these Hasidic communities are doing and what these um, uh, Orthodox, uh, these uh, yeshivish communities are doing, that they're not really teaching their kids. And they don't realize that at, where they see a dog whistle in every single thing Trump says, where they see 10 steps down the road in every single Republican policy, they can't see one step away from their own yeshivas, their own schools, their own minor Orthodox schools being regulated up to wazoo if this stuff passes. They exactly. see it as it's going to hit the Hasidic community. It's going to hit the and we don't have so much a connection with them. Forget about the fact that, like, probably everybody is related to each other. Like, let's let's put that aside. So you do have a much stronger connection than you like to think you do. Right. But the, <laughs> but there's so many people in the modern Orthodox conservative reform community who are like, well, it's going to happen to them. It's not going to happen to me. But you think it's not going to happen to the Solomon Schechters or the or the uh, or the Hafters or the Hanks or all the modern Orthodox uh, schools that are in New York State. It will, all right? They're just going after the low-hanging fruit. The next step is saying, well, you need to have twice as much secular curriculum as you do uh, religious curriculum. And then you have, so now instead of going till 6 p.m., you're going to have kids going till 9 p.m. Like, it's going to happen. It's not, it, yeah. it, it's not even that far off. It's a great point. That's the naivete is the so-called moderates who, well, we'll be open to them interfering and them restricting this, but, you know, it won't lead to anything more. Like once you let the government in, once you give them that, you know, the allow them to invade, then they don't, like, discriminate. They they, they step into everything. This is always the fear of mine when it comes to um, government funding of of yeshivas, parochial schools, private schools, charter schools, is I desperately want – the money to get out of the public school system, follow the students, school choice for all. But at the same time, I'm I'm terribly nervous about getting the government grips in our schools. So I'm actually of, of two minds when it comes to that particular issue. But granted, if I'm paying 70% of my property taxes to the public school system and then paying another $10,000 per child on top of that, that's also untenable. So we have a lot of issues in the Jewish community. And the fact that New York State is a big – the governance as it stands now is a huge part of those issues, is untenable. We cannot have that keep going forward. So we need to have a change in leadership. We need to have people who understand the needs of the Jewish community but will not destroy the Jewish community, will not destroy the religious freedom we have. And at this point, the only party in the country that's doing that is the GOP. Exactly. Now let's shift gears a little bit back to Biden. What are your thoughts on President Biden's recent trip to the Middle East and his notorious fist bump with uh, MBS? Oh, that and in general, hilarious. the trip, by the way. They, so the trip was um, – I wrote a column basically saying he didn't break anything, but he didn't fix anything. Like <laughs> the, the idea that it was – it was a waste of time. Let's just call it, call it that. The, but I would love – when it comes to the fist bump, the I love to be in the room when they 
because if you, I don't know if you know the background story of this, for weeks they were talking about, well, we cannot have Biden shake anyone's hand because of COVID. No handshaking, but really it wasn't about COVID. It was about they didn't want to show him handshaking with uh, MBS, Mohammed bin uh. Solomon. So th- that was what they were going for. The second Biden gets off that plane in Israel, he starts shaking everyone's hands. He's shaking hands of Holocaust survivors who are like 100 years old. And so he's shaking everyone's hands. So then they have to, the comms team probably had to get back together and be like, oh, my God, what are we going to do now? We have to get – what are we going to do? He can't not shake his hand because that would be um, too embarrassing. He can't shake his, shake his hand because it would be too familiar. Oh, here we go. We'll split the baby. We're going to do a fist bump. But they're so stupid, they didn't realize that a fist bump is so much more of a friendly gesture right. than, than a handshake. Like, why not just do, like, a, a high five going into a windmill like Top Gun? Like, just do – why don't you just go full? Why don't you just have, like, a, an elaborate 30-step handshake, like, in the AMLB? Like, it, just, it was so dumb. So that was just – it was just a failure of epic proportions. But – <laughs> like, which kind of, of sums up the entire Biden administration, a failure of epic yes, proportions. Everything they do is just an epic failure. But in terms of actual policy when it comes to um, the uh, it, it, what came out of that trip, Biden is stuck in the past. Biden is stuck in the 1990s when it comes to policy with Israel. He's pushing Oslo-era policies, which no one in Israel cares about, and no one in, none of the Palestinian people want. Like, they were offered these policies. They were offered the two-state solution. They were offered um, all these things, and they rejected it in the 90s. They signed something, but then the, the, the decade that followed Oslo had more terrorism than the decade that preceded Oslo. They were offered it again in the 2000s. They started the Second Intifada. They offered it again in, the, in, in 2008, I believe. They rejected it without a, um, without a counteroffer. Nobody wants this. Biden is stuck in the wrong decade. And for all of Trump's uh, blathering about he created the deal of the century, what he actually did was create peace in the Middle East. And Biden, in a year and a half, has done everything he could to ruin that. But he's, <laughs> he hasn't ruined it yet. It's almost completely on fire, but it's not on fire yet. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, it's like literally for the last 40 years, I have heard politicians talk about the two-state solution on both sides. Forty years, the two-state solution. The two-state, they say it with a sta- straight face as low, like we don't wake up and say, uh, it's been 40 years. There's no two-state solution happening. You guys are just, everyone's just fighting. They're just in a war zone. So Trump wakes up and uh, says, wait a second, let's actually look at the facts on the ground. Exactly what you just said. Um, there are no two states. There's like one really big state, and then there's like a sliver over here of Palestinian land, and we'll gladly give that to them. Meanwhile, we'll like let, make peace between Israel and like all the countries that actually matter, Israel and Bahrain and the UAE and the Saudis, whether it's official or not. Everybody knows the Israelis and the Saudis have major diplomatic relations going on. And like everyone got everyone went crazy on Trump. Like how, how could Trump do that? How could he like just marginalize the Palestinians like that? All Trump did was like hold up a mirror, say, here, guys. This is the situation. It already is happening. Let's just call it that. Absolutely. And the issue with the rhetoric of our preferred policy is the two-state solution or our goal is the two-state solution. The problem with that is that it basically allows for all the bad action from the Fatah, from Hamas, from Hezbollah, from all these terrorist organizations that run the Palestinian people and it says to them, you can do whatever you want because we want to reward you with a state. That's what we want. We want you to have a state. 
So whatever you want to do until you come to the negotiating table to give you a state, just do whatever you want. It's a ridiculous position to start from because you're starting from a position where you're giving everything away. You have to start from a position of strength. Everyone in real Israel has realized this. That's why a left-wing party does not exist in Israel at this point. 80% of Knesset is is right to center right on the issue of what to do with um, the Palestinian Authority, and it's never going to change. The only reason why there is so many elections was because Benjamin Netanyahu is himself an unpopular figure in, in uh, Israeli politics uh, because he's made a lot of enemies. But in terms of foreign policy, it actually is everyone's on the same page. All right. Now, the Biden administration, as we've said, as everybody knows, no secret, is a train wreck. I mean, even the mainstream media right now is throwing Biden under the bus. They would kill for him to not run again, to announce that he's not running again in 2024. I don't think he's going to run again, but they want they want it to be official. And a recent poll, I mean, this is a huge embarrassment, a recent poll in New Hampshire among Democrat voters, Biden got 16 percent. I'm sure you saw this. came in second. I, I cannot remember ever an incumbent president coming in second in any poll. Second, and by the way, he didn't come in second to Gavin Newsom, who to me, I, I, I can't stand Newsom, but he's a respectable candidate. He came in second to Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg like, is a walking embarrassment and has been a disaster. Even his own policies, ch ch transportation secretary, I mean, with the supply chain, Buttigieg is an abject, abject failure, and he beat Biden. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about all of that. And I also want to add, uh, and I'm curious your thoughts about this. It, it, Biden, I don't believe it's just incompetence. All you, know, you look at every single policy as a failure, the economy, the border, Afghanistan, we can go through it all. And that's, that's really hard to do. Like, I don't think that could just happen by accident. Oh, absolutely. So about that poll, that poll was hilarious. So when I saw that, <laughs> I was scrolling through Twitter, and I, was, I noticed it, and it was the funniest thing in the world because it wasn't just – Buttigieg with 17%, Biden was 16%, but um, AOC was right under Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris was at like, was seventh on the list, sixth or seventh on that list. Um, it, she was at like 6%. Like, she's a sitting vice president of the United States. Hello. <laughs> like, even, if you, even if you say, like, listen, Biden's too old, you usually go to this. But AOC is right there. She'd be crazy not to run. There's no reason for AOC to not run in 2024. Biden ran in 88 and 2008, 1988 and 2008, before he eventually won in 2020. So there's nothing stopping her from just running 20 times and eventually becoming president. Really, there isn't. It's only going to get crazier. Bernie Sanders was high on that list. Um, Elizabeth <laughs> Warren was high on that list. Like, you just have socialists, like, leading the Democratic Party or people who take off two months for paternity leave when his husband, nobody gave birth. So in the middle of a surviving <laughs> crisis, that's your number one. That's your number one. It's absolutely hilarious. I love that list. It cracked me up. It, um, yeah. And the, the best, though, was Cory Booker was, like, dead last. <laughs> like, Cory Booker can't buy a vote. In <laughs> he, can't. he can't. And, and, it, and, and it's funny. I'll just – I'm not a fan of his policies. He, he's actually a more decent candidate than a lot of the others who get ahead. Just shows you that there's like no rhyme or reason. He was he was solid when he was in. Uh, I think it was mayor of mayor, Newark. Yeah, mayor uh, of Newark. Yeah. yeah. When he was mayor of Newark, he was much more solid. Then when he went into the U.S. Senate, he got crazier and crazier. He did get crazy. And, true. 
what he called himself Spartacus or something like that. In he said, "I am Spartacus," in, uh, in a judicial hearing. It was it was just amazing. But uh, and then you had the second part of the question. I don't remember because I'm the laughing at that poll. So yeah, um, the, the, the fact that it, it, it like that I don't believe really I just up. I just don't believe that it's oh yes. by accident. I believe this is by design. I believe that they tanked the economy, and I don't know if that's at this point considered the popular or mainstream view or a conspiracy theory. But they know that if you like uh, pump mil trillions of dollars, uh, print trillions of dollars, pump it into the economy, it's going to lead to more inflation. The inflation was not transitory, and I think they just they just want the whole country to be a welfare state. So. I will quote Barack Obama when I say, but I'll change one word, never underestimate Joe Biden's ability to mess things up. <laughs> I, I cleaned it up for the, Thank for the podcast. You, yes. but, the, but, <laughs> but you can't. You can't underestimate his ability to mess things up. And the, uh, they are just listening to economists who have been wrong every single step of the way. But the beautiful thing about politics is you can be wrong your entire career and still move up. Look at Anthony Fauci as example number one. You could be wrong about so many things for so many decades and become the highest paid bureaucrat in the history of the country. And that is true with a lot of Democrat economists. You can be wrong about inflation. You could be wrong about recession. You could be wrong about the stock market. And yet, when they come to you and say, hey, if we pump more money into this place, will, will the recession go down? Oh, yes, yes, of course. It'll, according to these projections and yada, yada, yadas, then of course it'll go down. Absolutely not. I don't buy it. it any first-year uh, Econ 101 student will be able to look at this stuff and say, what are you talking about? This will not work out. But you have the crisis of the expertise who just sit in – their ivory tower and fill out the uh, the spreadsheets and then say, this must have worked out. Why didn't it work out? It must be their <laughs> fault. Give us more power. And yes, that's it exactly is. what it is. It's amazing. I mean, they're running the United States of America, and this is it. I mean, it, it could be like a comedy television show. Uh, a last question. Uh, if Trump runs again, uh, number one, does he win the primaries? And number two, um, is he the strongest candidate uh, in 2024? Would you prefer... Ron DeSantis or Marco Rubio? So very different questions. So if Trump runs again, he will be the candidate. I think that all the strong contenders that we have, which we have such a deep bench, it's actually crazy. Um, we can go, we, we have 10 people who would be amazing Agreed. at the job and they're young. They're in their 40s. We have a bench that goes for the next two decades and I'm very <laughs> excited about it. But if Trump runs again, all those people will say, I'm backing off. It is not worthwhile getting into a mud fight with Donald Trump over – it is not worthwhile getting into a mud fight with Donald Trump over um, the, the primary. The only ones who will run against Donald Trump will – you'll have your Adam Kinzigers and your Liz Cheney's, and they're gonna, they would run against Trump, and they'll get destroyed. So if Trump runs again, he will win the primary, and I think he – what he does in uh, the general – it always depends because he's still a very unpopular figure. And that is why I don't want Trump to not run because I don't think he would do a great job in his second term. Or even though he is going to be very old, I'm not saying that that's a great thing, but it's also not a, a deal breaker for me. The thing that kills me is that he's so unpopular and he's so toxic as a personality that he will turn off so many people 
who will vote Republican in 2024. That's my feeling. And actually, other people are like the exact opposite. No, he's going to bring those people out or he's going to bring out all the base and all that kind of stuff. So that's definitely up to interpretation. But if it were up to me, I would want to go into a post-Trump Republican Party that he created, which I like that he created it. The new Republican Party is one that fights, is one that, that argues back. You have Ron DeSantis, obviously, but you also have Carrie Lake in Arizona. She's doing a great job. I think she's going to win her, her governorship. Um, you have uh, other people all around the country. You have Byron Donalds down in Florida, who's a great congressman. You have all these congressmen, all these governors, um, all these senators who are have a fight in them that did not exist seven, eight, nine years ago in the Republican Party, and definitely not 20 years ago in the Republican Party. So I want it to be a post-Trump Republican Party with DeSantis taking the lead, Trump being the kingmaker, saying, this is my Republican Party. These are the people I'm endorsing. This is who my chosen successor is, and just ride off into the sunset. That would be my ideal. But if Trump decides he does have a big ego, let's not forget about that. If he says, I am doing it, going for a do-over in 2024, he will be the nominee, and I think that he will likely win. It's going to be very hard for him to walk away. An ego, but also he's a competitor, and he believes he won in 2020. And he, Or even if he doesn't yeah. believe it, he puts on that image. So, it, like, just to walk away, Tim would almost be like conceding defeat. Uh, do you actually think if he runs, DeSantis will not even run? I don't think DeSantis will, DeSantis will run if Trump runs. That, that's I think, very interesting. Yeah, I think that um, – I, I think DeSantis may actually be his VP. I think so, and, too. And then they would do uh, four years Trump, eight years DeSantis, which would be Shangri-La. I mean, <laughs> look at America at the end of 12 years in, in 2036. It will be a completely different country. And, 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 and I like yeah. yeah, I like what you said about Trump's – look, I agree with you said what you said about Trump's negatives. I mean, I feel like we're going to cave not to realize all the negatives he brings to the table in 2024. Agreed about that. I like the way you point that you made it about – uh, his electability versus his policies, because I cannot stand these Republicans who say, oh, what did Trump really do for the Republican Party? Or, oh, you know, another candidate would have, I'm sorry. I mean, declaring the emergency we got with the border wall, the travel ban, I mean, the, the Israeli embassy move. Trump did things that every candidate before him, every president before him was terrified to, 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 to fight the fight, as you said. So I, I do want to recognize that, that he did things that Nobody else, including probably even Ronald Reagan, who was the most transformative figure in all those years. So I, I like that, you know, recognizing now you say, but now that he kind of laid the groundwork, now let somebody who's not toxic step in. I just I'm always afraid people have very short memories and suddenly they're in office for a year. The media bombards them with all the negative coverage and they you know, say, all right, you know what, let me just be like a safe vanilla moderate. That's that, that's my fear that nobody will have the guts that Trump has. Other than that, that's just so that's what's so enticing about Ron DeSantis in particular, because he's already bombarded by the media in Florida right. and has been throughout COVID, and he is just dominating them. Now, obviously, the national pressure versus the – he has been getting a lot of national pressure. Let's not tone it down. But obviously, there is no kind of pressure that you get than when you're president of the United States. So, But I think that he has proven himself because that is an excellent point that you say when you get the pressure from the media – Republicans have learned, and this lesson started in 2012 with Newt Gingrich. It wasn't learned in 2012, but it was learned in 2016. It was continued to be learned in 2020 that the enemy of the Republican Party is not the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is a competing interest to the Republican Party in terms of governance. The enemy of the Republican Party is the media. 
And any Republican who wants to run has to know that. They have to know that the enemy of the party is the media. Great and point. that's the only way you can do it. All right, Moshe Hill, we're going to leave it there. Far exceeded all the expectations, which are very high to begin with. This is great. Political columnist Moshe Hill. Thank um, you. Again, the so you're at uh, your senior fellow at Amaria, the weekly column in the QJL, a hillwithaview.com, which is a blog where a lot of your pieces are up, right? It's updated regularly. I just looked at it this week. And yeah. uh, at Hill with View, follow him on Twitter. Anything else you want to plug? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. My Facebook, I'm on JNS. I've, uh, I've appeared oh, all over the place. Yeah, so that's a syndicated column that goes around and uh, uh, all over the place. So you, you can't miss me. If you're looking for me, you can't miss me. Okay, <laughs> looking forward to doing this again. Moshe Hill on the Vin News Podcast.